Coming up next on the Passion Struck Podcast. I didn't have my job as about being out there in public. I lost my means for creating an income. I lost my friendship circle. I was too busy hiding out in shame of like how I appeared. This whole thing about being pretty, boy, this thing, when it happened to me, really got to me because of that deep wound, that soul wound from childhood. Here I was, I looked like a monster at this point. Truly, I'm not saying that, I looked like a monster. Welcome to Passion Struck. Hi, I'm your host, John R. Miles. And on the show, we decipher the secrets, tips, and guidance of the world's most inspiring people and turn their wisdom into practical advice for you and those around you. Our mission is to help you unlock the power of intentionality so that you can become the best version of yourself. If you're new to the show, I offer advice and answer listener questions on Fridays. We have long form interviews the rest of the week with guests ranging from astronauts to authors, CEOs, creators, innovators, scientists, military leaders, visionaries, and athletes. Now, let's go out there and become Passion Struck. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 162 of Passion Struck, one of the top health and fitness podcasts in the world. And thank you to each and every one of you who come back weekly to listen and learn how to live better, be better, and impact the world. And if you're new to the show, welcome. If you want to share this with friends or family members, thank you, by the way. We now have episode starter packs, both on Spotify and on the Passion Struck website. These are collections of our fans' favorite episodes that we organize into different topics to give any new listener a great way to get acquainted to everything that we do here on the show. Just go to passionstruck.com starter packs to get started. And if you missed my episodes from earlier this week and last week, we had on Professor Sarah Mednick, who's a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of California, Irvine, and one of the foremost experts on sleep and the author of To Take a Nap and the Power of the Downstate. And we also had on Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and repeat number one Amazon best-selling author Stephen Conkley, who specializes in spy thrillers. Please go check them all out. And if you missed my Momentum Friday episode last week, it was all on the power of meditation and the 10 benefits that you can get from it. I also wanted to say thank you for your ratings and reviews. They go such a long way in helping to promote the popularity of the Passion Struck podcast and helping us move up in the podcast ratings. I so appreciate all your support and helping us build this Passion Struck community. Now, let's talk about today's guest. Carrington Smith is a single mom, business owner, attorney, and executive search professional. For much of her life, it was struggling just to survive, to hold it together, to stay above water. She has survived sexual assault, two divorces, piles of debt, abuse, religious mind games, the death of loved ones, and the loss of close friends. On her journey to self-acceptance, she learned the power of perspective and began to thrive when she changed her mindset. In her debut best-selling memoir titled Blooming, Carrington combines wit and wisdom to share her journey through the shit of life to a life that's bursting with joy, opportunity, and passion. And in our discussion, we talk about her continued journey and her inability to meet her parents' and family's expectations, her trauma that occurred in college that forever changed her life, but more importantly, how her friends and her own mom responded to that event, how her family upbringing made her feel like such an imposter as she got older, the importance of life's micro choices in determining our long-term destinies, how she found herself lost in the wilderness, and her steps, more importantly, 
to get out of it. Why? We should begin with the end in mind and so much more. Thank you for choosing Passion Struck and choosing me to be your host and guide on your journey, creating an intentional life. Now, let that journey begin. I am so ecstatic to have Carrington Smith on the podcast today. Welcome, Carrie, to the Passion Struck Podcast. Thank you, John, for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I thought I would start this off. You and I, as I was reading your book, and I will put up copy for it right here so the audience can see it. It's called Blooming. But <laughs> throughout the book, I saw several overlaps that you and I shared. And one of those was our parents introducing us to tennis when we were both pretty youthful. And I remember there were times as I was growing up where I was playing four to five times a week competitively. And as I was listening to your story, there are other elements of your tennis game that you can bring up. Do you find that at times you were fighting yourself through that experience? I definitely was fighting myself in that my background with tennis, I started out playing okay. And I come from a family of everyone playing tennis and having some real champions in the family. The reason I was fighting myself is because when I was about five, my tennis game started to disintegrate and suddenly I could not hit the ball to save my life. And everybody thought, Oh, this kid just like, just sucks, (laughs) has no athletic ability. What's happened here. I was rejected by my family. What I didn't understand was that I had, sustained an injury in the interim and developed a paralysis in one of my eyes, which caused the ball to be at one height for one eye and at one height for another. And my brain would try to merge those images. And if something's coming at me quickly, a hundred percent of the time, I will miss it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I will tell you, I was trying to staple something to the wall this weekend for my son, for his graduation. And every time I would go to staple, I would miss every time. And they were laughing at me. And I said, this is an example. You can literally see in real time how my eyes think something is one place and I go to do it and it misses. And so it was really illustrative of the difficulty I would have with any hand-eye coordination effort at all. But the thing is when in a family where that was so highly valued, I was completely rejected, like I was disposable, because I suddenly lacked the ability to play tennis. I mean, of any skill there is, that was it for them. They're like, she's not one of us. I was outside, I was on the outside looking in. It's still a source of frustration to this day. I hear friends talking about going to play tennis, knowing that that's something that I cannot do. I can't even get surgery to correct this. It's not possible. And so it's a source of frustration, but I've had to learn that the differences that I have, the fact that I can't play tennis means I'm exceptional at other things. And I've had to learn that we can't value somebody just on one trait and that my family was overlooking all these wonderful things about me because they were so focused on the one thing I did not have. And that's the sad part of that. But it also is what makes kind of made me grow into a better person. So interestingly enough, in some ways I can emphasize with you because when I was 
probably about the same age till I was eight or nine, I had an eye condition called amplyopia, which means you have a weaker eye. And so I had to play tennis with a patch on one eye. So it made hitting shots and realizing their depth and other things very difficult. But I do find that quite interesting because I was raised in a family of huge tennis players. We would all gather around and watch Wimbledon or the U.S. Open. That was everything. And our summers were all just consumed by playing tennis. So I can get the expectations and how they could be so high on you, even at such a young age. But the expectation setting didn't stop there. As I heard your story, there were so many moments in your life that were just unbelievable. And I think one of the most shocking to me was the comparison on your outer looks that your dad made between you and your sister. Can you talk about that a little bit and how that has impacted you? So for the listener, when I was probably about eight or nine years old, like every little girl does, looking to my father to find out if I was pretty or not. I asked him, I said, dad, am am I pretty? And he gave me the once over. I mean, he really gave me kind of a look up and down and kind of stepped back and looked at me and said, yeah, no, yeah, you're not pretty. Look, I don't want to set you up for disappointment in life. I don't want you to have false expectations. You need to know you're just, you're not pretty, but your sister She's beautiful. Oh man, (laughs) for a little girl, I mean, he didn't just break my heart. He stomped on it for the rest of my life. I've had issues with body dysmorphia. I've always been sort of obsessed with being pretty and trying to be pretty. And the worst part of this was I learned 30 years later that he'd had the same conversation with my sister, but in reverse, he had told her that she was not pretty, but he, as a malignant narcissist, he did that intentionally to drive a wedge between me and my sister. And also to put us in a situation where we were constantly looking to him for approval. It's a very common dynamic with a malignant narcissist. So what happened was not only did I have this complete loss of self-esteem, but I lost my relationship with my sister for years because we were constantly competing with one another. And I was always being compared to her. So it was this very sick dynamic, but yeah, for years, I mean, even to this day, um, the good, as I always like to find the silver lining in these things, the good news is my self-esteem is not based on being pretty. It's based on being smart because that's where I got my accolades and praise from as a child. My very core personality is based on intelligence. However, because of that dynamic, it's very important to me to be pretty. Obviously I value beauty on the inside so much more, but it's definitely something that's interwoven into my personality because of that. Yeah. Interesting. I found another overlap that we sort of had was my parents didn't pay for me to go to college, but they paid for my sister and brother. Unfortunately, my father had lost his job for an expended period of time and had used up some of the college savings. So when it was my turn, I was going to have to pay for the majority of it myself, which I couldn't afford. It's not the reason I ended up going to the Naval Academy, but it sure helped to have free tuition. Yeah. But 
In your story, you talk about how your older siblings were set up by your parents to go to really exclusive schools, not only for college, but also, I think in the case of your sister, a private school to prepare her for going to college. Oh, yes. So my grandmother, mother, and then my sister all went to Miss Porter's in Farmington, Connecticut. It's a very exclusive, all-female boarding school. And so they decided that my sister, who's I'm the baby of the family because she was the older sister. They, and of course she could play tennis and was more athletic and kind of became the, 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 it was my brother and my sister being the favorite. And then I was sort of the leftover. Um, so in this circumstance, when they decided to send my sister to Miss Porter's, they actually asked me to transfer to public school. I'd been going to a small private school in the Seattle area. And so she goes off to Miss Porter's in Farmington, Connecticut, and I end up going to public school. And it really, it's weird. It's just your life. You don't really even think about it while you're going through it. But as we got older and started talking about our high school experiences, I mean, she was going to the the black and white ball in New York City, this debutante ball. She was going off on private jets on the weekends because that's, she was in the private jet crowd. I was in public school in a industrial town. We would go have a party on a vacant lot somewhere. It was just very different life experiences. And part of that too, was that she walked away with a Rolodex. I mean, crazy Rolodex. And then she went from there to USC, University of Spoiled Children. And eventually she got an MBA from Dartmouth. So, and my brother went to Stanford. So they were definitely set up for success and financially supported and positioned for that to happen. And I was always told, look, even when I got to college, they asked me to go in state because my brother and sister were off at these exclusive private schools and they couldn't afford to pay for all three of us going there. So in the end, it, I am a much more resilient person. I really believe I turned out the best of all three of us. And it's because of the character that I built through the experiences I had them sort of abandoning me, not sort of truly abandoning me in law school. Um, That definitely shaped my life in a lot of positive and negative ways, but it, I know that I can take care of myself. I dug myself out of $150,000 in debt and that was totally me. And there's no one else who can take credit for that. You learn from those experiences and those good traits that I know I'm scrappy. I have no doubt that I can get something done, that I can dig myself out of something. And those experiences helped to shape my personality and help me professionally in the end. Well, I think this is a good segue into perhaps this next question, but I'll kind of build into it that, as you mentioned, your brother went to Stanford, your sister went to USC. And you end up going to Washington State. And we all have moments that define us. Can you tell me about a moment that shaped you and how during your undergraduate experience? You're stealing the question from my book. (laughs) Again, for the listener, that is the framework of my book is that question. And the first chapter is about being raped in college. So yeah, I went off to Washington State University and outside of this very rigorous 
sort of micromanaged life into off on my own. And sort and again, sort of just like go, we're kind of done with you. I went over for, it was during homecoming week and I went over to a fraternity house because we were building yard displays for homecoming and went over with a group of sorority sisters and one by one, they peeled off and I didn't realize I was there left by myself. And I ended up getting, I don't want to go into all the details, but I ended up getting raped and it was truly a horrific experience. And I'm very deliberate about being specific and detailed about that experience, because I think too often these days, the sort of the bad side of the Me Too movement is that people think, oh, it's just another sexual assault. I really wanted people to experience what I went through, to understand from beginning to end, like how it happened, how I ended up there, the pain that I went through, how I ducked myself out, the the responses I received from my mother, from my sorority sister. Um, And I guess one of the most shocking things about it, I think people find is how my mother responded when I finally told her that I'd been raped. And what happened was, I confided in her and her response to me was to get angry. And she turned red in the face and stood up and said, I am so disappointed in you. We had hoped that you would be a virgin when you got married and just shaking red, just angry with me and said, you are never to speak of this ever again. And you were never to tell your father. And just that was it for me. I didn't talk about it for six years. I tried like so many people just to forget about it, to pretend it didn't happen. But what happens with trauma, if we don't deal with it, is that it comes back to bite us and it ends up coming out through our own behavior. We start reliving the experience because it's unaddressed. And so I became promiscuous, which years later, after much therapy, I learned that's a fairly common response to being raped is you start to act out those behaviors. And so suddenly I'm thinking that I'm only worthy of sex with some random person. I don't think there's any value to me or who I am actually. Well, the first thing that started the healing process was I actually sat down and wrote the story of the rape and shared it with somebody who I was romantically involved with. And it was through writing about that trauma that I began to heal. I talk about that because I want to encourage people to think about that as an option, because I think for a lot of people talking about trauma, it's so hard, not just because you go back and you relive it, but because of the immediate judgment that you get from people. And the worst is the minimizing Oh, it wasn't that bad. Oh, you should have known better. The minimizing is so harmful. But when I wrote it, there was no audience. It was me telling my truth. And there was no one there to minimize or shame me or make me feel bad about what happened. And then when I shared my story with the guy that I was romantically involved with, he surprised me by embracing me. And that was the beginning of the healing process for me. Do you have a topic like today's that you would like to see us cover. You can reach us at Momentum Friday at passionstruck.com. Keep your emails concise. Use a descriptive subject line. That keeps things easy for us. Reach out to us if there's a topic 
you're interested in learning about. There's something that maybe you're going through, any big decision that you're wrestling with, or perhaps you just want a new perspective on work, love, or life. Whatever's got you staying up at night, hit us up at Momentum Friday at passionstruck.com. We're here to help and we keep every email anonymous. Now, back to Passion Struck. Well, I can't even imagine what you went through and then to lose the support that you thought you were going to have from your sorority sisters and then to again lose it from the one person who should have been most compassionate, your mom, to not being able to talk about it. I know myself from having endured my fair share of trauma that I tried to internalize everything. I tried to just wear it inside. What ends up happening over a period is you start internalizing more and more to the point that you become emotionally numb after a while. And that's a terrible state to be in. So the sooner you can find alternate ways to relieve that trauma, whether it's, as you said, writing it out or cognitive behavioral therapy or cognitive processing therapy, prolonged exposure therapy, et cetera. I highly encourage people not to, to wait because the longer you let it endure, it has such a long-term severe impact leading to depressive disorder and other things that just carry a huge weight over you. And I experienced all of that. I had a major depressive disorder basically, and actually spent a year on the couch doing psychoanalysis with a therapist to kind of deprogram all these messages that I'd received, whether it was from my father telling me I wasn't pretty to some of the other horrible things that he told us, but also deprogramming the messages I got from the rape and really dealing with that trauma. I mean, five days a week for a year on the couch, (laughs) it was the best money I've ever spent. And I didn't stop there. I mean, I've done all kinds of things. I'm constantly trying to identify those obstacles and things that are stopping me from being successful and figuring out the paths to get there. And for a lot of it was that psychoanalysis. I've also done healing hypnosis, which I found to be incredibly helpful and very, it's much faster in some ways. So whatever works for you, encourage people to reach out for those resources and not be ashamed that they've experienced trauma. That's the worst part is the shame, which shouldn't be there. No, not at all. Yeah. And it's been amazing for me over the past couple of years, I have been reaching out to more and more veterans. And for a very long period of my life, I tried to avoid being around veterans or going to the VFW or American Legion or anything like that. Because ultimately, when you start talking to a veteran, we sometimes are best friends and worst enemies because they immediately want to understand what you did and then go into challenging questions of what did you experience in combat? This is what I did. And for me, it would bring back all kinds of flashbacks, which would impact my life and my sleep and everything else. But I've now learned to kind of embrace it. I only share what I'm willing to share, but I've gotten comfortable because of the work I've done on myself that I don't let those things bother me anymore. But it did take me putting myself purposely in situations that I didn't want to be in to get myself over them. And I guess you could say the same thing with public speaking or other things that you go through, but that's sometimes what you have to do, I feel, with trauma. Absolutely. They say, at least with regard to writing, something that you're going to put out in public, don't share anything that you haven't already done the work on. And the same would be true as far as any kind of 
traumatic experience before you get out there and start talking about something in public or with a group where you open yourself up. It's important to already have done that work because otherwise you're opening yourself up to being re-traumatized. There's a reason why, I mean, I'm 54 years old. There's a reason why it took me however many years to write the story and put it in public about being raped when I was 19. So there's a lot of healing that happened in between. I hope that by sharing that story that it has touched lives. And I think the best magic part of the story that I share is that I talk about how I took what happened to me and I learned to look at it and claim it as part of who I was instead of rejecting it, instead claiming it and saying, what did I get from this experience? And how can I use that to propel me to greatness? And changing my viewpoint Instead of looking at something that had been done to me and had harmed me into something that was now part of me and part of the fabric of who I was, I mean, I couldn't deny that it's true. Instead, looking at the work that I'd done and saying, how can I use what happened to me? What did I get from this? How can I use it to move me forward and propel me forward? And that is probably the most important aspect of that story is that I was successful doing that, but I use the example of others that were too. So people can see how others have also taken these horrible things that have happened to them and use them to propel them forward. Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner. We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things and Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities from scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates. It's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash passionstruck. Just go to indeed.com slash passionstruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now back to passionstruck. Yeah, well, I love the quote by Brene Brown that you used in the book where it says, owning your story and loving ourselves through all that process is the bravest thing we can do. And I think that's what you just covered. Yeah, absolutely. So a great way to open up chapter one where you kind of lay out this story. And I was going to continue the story for the listener. So you end up convincing your parents to move from Washington State University to attend the University of Texas. You successfully get your undergraduate degree and decide you want to go to law school. And now you think 
I have finally gotten the golden ticket. I finally gotten my chance. Your parents have agreed to send you to law school. You get into Tulane. You're probably on one of the highest clouds you've ever been on. And then what happens? Yeah, I get there and I'm like, wow, this is, and they encouraged me to go to Tulane. Yes, sure turn. We got this. Go to Tulane. I'm like, it's expensive. Go, go. We got this. I get there. It was probably the first semester. They said, you know what? We changed our mind. We're tired of paying for you kids. You're on your own. I was like, what? I'm sorry, what? They were still claiming me on their income tax. I could not qualify for any needs-based loans. And because I was so late in the game, the only thing I could get was these credit-based loans that were like 10 or 12%. I mean, we don't even pay that <laughs> I mean, on your mortgage today, right? I mean, that's insanity. And so here I was set up to fail, feeling totally abandoned. I mean, it was just kind of like, yeah, we changed your mind. You're on your own. To the point that I was grocery shopping. I was working for a professor, getting loans, trying to make ends meet. And I still was having trouble finding the money to eat because I wasn't getting enough money because of the obstacles I had to getting it. So I was in the grocery line and the person in front of me had food stamps and they had the conveyor belt covered pork chops and potatoes and cakes and bread and you name it. It was lots of food. And I was behind this person and I had a powdered can of slim fast and a gallon of milk. And I had determined that if I combined those two, it was less than $5 a week. And I would get all my vitamins and nutrients in from the slim fast to add it to the milk. And that would be my, my meals for the week. And I walked outside and I called my father in the parking lot. And I said, dad, the person in front of me has food stamps and they have way more food than I and I have. And I was crying. I'm like, I'm working and going to law school. And he's like, I hadn't thought of that. You should apply for food stamps. How, like, how does that even compute? I mean, I have a sister at USC, a brother at Stanford, and I should be on food stamps. Why didn't think of that? You should apply for food stamps. I'm like, dad, I'm not applying for food stamps. And the, the kicker of that too, is he loved to criticize people who are on welfare. He, that was one of his favorite things was to criticize those kinds of people. And yet he was telling his own daughter, I went hungry a lot. And again, the silver lining from that was, I have such a heart for people who are hungry. I mean, one of my favorite charities is the Capital Area Food Bank here in Austin, because I really get what it's like to be hungry. I've been there where I had really nothing to eat. So I understand that. Well, then you end up persevering throughout all of this. You end up meeting a romantic partner along the way of this journey, maybe for some of the reasons that you brought up before that they were really one of the first people who was accepting you and was being the one sympathetic ear that you had never had throughout this whole journey. But you end up graduating from law school and practicing law for a bit. What caused you to stop practicing and to go into recruiting? I didn't have the easiest legal experience, I guess. 
I graduated in a year where there were basically no jobs. Then I had tons of debt. I was the lucky one. I did get a job, but it didn't pay very much. And the environment that I worked in was quite toxic. I worked for a retired uh, Texas Supreme Court justice who was notorious for his sexual harassment. And the firm was like, well, who are we going to stand by? The Supreme Court justice or this baby lawyer? And of, of course they chose him. And so I was told, if you don't like it, you can change jobs. And so I reached out to a client and asked for a reference. And they said, wherever you're going, we're going. And ended up starting my own firm. Basically, I learned through this process. There are a lot of kind of fun stories in my early career. But what I took away from it was, while I enjoyed working with lawyers, I didn't really enjoy the actual practice of law. It's really hard work and I didn't have much of a social life. And that's a very big part of who I am. And my strengths really lie in developing relationships and understanding people as opposed to being stuck in minutia. (laughs) So yeah, I made the leap to get into headhunting and that's the best decision I ever made. It's been a wonderful career for me. Yeah. And what type of law did you practice? I did property tax litigation. (laughs) It'll drive me to headhunting faster than anything. Yeah. I mean, I went to law school to avoid numbers and I end up working in property tax. So the good part of that uh, was our clients were fortune 500 companies. Um, The bad part of that was it was property tax. (laughs) I have so many friends who are attorneys who no longer practice law. And the number just seems to keep growing. I remember when my first cousin was looking at law school or going to an MBA, he came to me and said, what do you think about me becoming a lawyer or getting my MBA? And I go, it's a very easy decision. Do you want to be an attorney or not? Because if you're uncertain about that question, then I would push you towards the MBA. If you are very much set on and have a passion for being an attorney, then go to law school. A lot of people that I've seen, and additionally in the corporate world, kind of go that route without truly understanding, as you were saying, some of the arduous components of it. And it's interesting. I have a husband and wife friend of mine who own a a law practice, and she's the one who actually does all the practicing of the law. And he does more of the business development arm. He will do some court visit. He was a prosecutor before, but it's interesting how, I guess, in any business, you each have your role. Yeah. But you're Um, right about that. I mean, it's good advice that you're giving. I discourage a lot of people. I, I say, don't go to law school because it's a huge amount of debt, unless you hundred percent know that's something that you want to do. And honestly, if you're not in the top 10 or 15% of your class after the first year, you might want to rethink that <laughs> because you're the likelihood of you reaching the kind of compensation levels that you would like are suddenly much slimmer. There's no other career where grades matter more than the practice of law. Yes. Well, and it's interesting. Uh, you know, I mentioned a number of my friends had become attorneys and then shifted directions. Well, two of my most recent guests on the podcast did the same thing. Gretchen Rubin goes to Yale Law School, becomes Sandra Day O'Connor's one of her the clerks. justices, yeah. her clerks, 
And during the time she was her clerk, comes the realization that she doesn't want to practice law and it's really writing that she wants to pursue. And then Susan Cain um, spent six to seven years in a law firm trying to make it up the ladder, finally gets to this point where she's up for partner and they deny her. And she ends up leaving the legal profession. And for both of them, now they're 10 times more successful doing what they're doing as writers than they would have been before. But it's not for everyone. And if a lawyer is listening to this and they want to pursue something else, I mean, I think we've both given some great examples that you're not stuck and you can apply this in different directions. Well, one of the interesting things and one of the reasons I love what I do, because now I'm a headhunter basically for lawyers, is I like to say my job is like a box of chocolates. Because anyone who goes to law school usually has had a previous career before they go. They have an undergraduate degree in something else. And what's fun about interviewing lawyers is that, and I've interviewed thousands of them, is that I'll interview one guy and he was in the NBA before (laughs) he went to law school. I interviewed another guy who's in the NFL before he went to law school. Another one was an electrical engineer before they went to law school. I mean, you never know. They could be a doctor before they go to law school. I mean, it's sort of the second career choice. And for some people, it's also that sort of like, I don't know what else I want to do. And so I never know what I'm going to get when I interview somebody, but there's always something interesting and some story underlying that decision to go to law school. And so that's why one of the reasons that I love what I do. Yeah, it's a funny story. I'm kind of laughing because uh, one of my college roommates ended up being our valedictorian. He was a Rhodes Scholar, becomes a Navy SEAL. Unfortunately, some things happened while he was a SEAL and he left the Navy to become an attorney. And I was telling this story (laughs) to my dad, who's a veteran, the other day. He goes, okay, so that's the backup plan to being a SEAL. (laughs) You become an attorney. Yeah. I mean, it's a backup plan for a lot of people. It may not, I mean, and for some people, it works out to be a great backup plan, but for others, it doesn't. And so I think the my word of caution with going to law school is about the debt, having really lived that experience. It's people need to go in with their eyes wide open when they make that decision. Well, I'm going to do a segue here and it's kind of on these same lines, but in chapter 18, you make a statement that you were lost in the wilderness. What did you mean by this? And do you think everyone goes through periods like this. What is your advice for people who might find themselves stuck in this wilderness? One of the things I joke about my book is there's something in there for everyone because I go from everything from, you know, being raped, being sexually harassed to, you know, my career journey to losing my mother, to losing my best friend to cancer. And then I was badly burned. I mean, there's just a lot that I've gone through. There's something in there that somebody can relate to. For me, I reached a point where you get so caught up in trying to please everyone and live the story that other people have in their mind for you. And I was just so unhappy. Every time I would try to fit in and do what I felt like I was supposed to do to make other people happy, I just became more miserable. And When I was burned, it was one of the most traumatic experiences of my life by far. It was really, really horrible. That was doing a laser treatment, correct? Yes. On my face, neck, decollete, and shoulders. And 
I don't know if you can see, but there's like all these white spots. I had tons of subsequent procedures to get me back to where I could even show my face. It's about a year of not being out in public. Through that experience, I like to compare being burned to be like a forest fire. With a forest fire from the charred remains comes new growth. And for me, when I was burned, I was taken down to nothing. Like, again, my job is about being out there in public. I lost my means for creating an income. I lost my friendship circle. I was too busy hiding out in shame of like how I appeared. This whole thing about being pretty, boy, this thing, when it happened to me, really got to me because of that deep wound, that soul wound from childhood. Here I was, I looked like a monster at this point. Truly, I'm not saying that. I looked like a monster. And so taking me down to nothing, everything fell away. And I suddenly had the freedom to just be me and not care about what everyone else thought, because I was really just putting one foot in front of the other, trying to pull my head, my neck above water. And through that process, all that just stuff from my past fell away. And I realized what was really, really important and it changed the focus of my life, the purpose of my life. I realized that all that really mattered were these core relationships with my kids and certain friends and family. And that every day, even if I couldn't be seen out in public, my whole purpose was to touch other people's lives. If that was sending an email that paid them a compliment or, you know, sending a prayer, giving a blessing in some way, interacting with people, always leaving them better off. Little by little, I finally dug myself out from there, but I came away free. I mean, all the stuff that I used to care about, it doesn't matter anymore. I downsized, I live a much simpler life and I realized none of that stuff even matters and I'm so much happier. And so I look at that event as such a gift because it has changed my life in such a positive direction. I'm grateful that it happened because it's improved my life dramatically. I think that's a great explanation for anyone on the show to hear us that sometimes when those things happen, it's one of the most clarifying moments you can have. And I'm doing a podcast that I'm releasing later this week on how we all have to embrace pain in our lives. And to me, it's how you choose to deal with that pain that decides the outcome you're going to have. Because you can choose to do unhealthy or harmful things such as numbing yourself or doing self-inflicted things to yourself that will only magnify in the end the pain that you're feeling. Or you can choose to really sit with it, be vulnerable with yourself about the pain you are feeling, and learn how to deal with it. I'm not sure if that's something you've gone through. It sounds like you have. Yes. Well, I love, there's a story in the book that I tell about a trip to Vegas that I took and I went with a girlfriend, the Bellagio had just opened. The big thing was the Bellagio fountains. We went to this restaurant that had an outdoor seating area overlooking the fountains. We had just finished dinner and I was getting it from the table. She was still sitting under the umbrella 
And I stood up and at that precise moment, a gust of wind hit the fountains and it was like a tidal wave over me out of nowhere. Just, oh my gosh. I, it was a deluge. I mean, they literally, they had like a little thing around the edge of the patio. And so there were probably about five inches of water on this patio. There was so much water. We had spent a couple hours getting ready. That's how girls we used to do when we were younger. And so my girlfriend looked at me like, what is going to happen here? Like, is our night ruined? Like, is it going to take her forever to get ready? I mean, I never forget the look of expectation on her face. Just like, what's going to happen? And I realized in that split second that I had a decision to make. How was I going to view this event? Because the story that I told myself, how I chose to view an event that in and of itself was neither good nor bad would determine how the evening would go. And so I said, well, what are the odds of this happening? Has anybody ever been hit by a fountain before? And they're like, no, this is the first time this has ever happened. I'm like, I have been baptized by the (laughs) holy water. We are going to win tonight. And so I use that moment to embrace the fact this was such a rare event. And we got out of there quickly and got quickly dried off. My friend was like, well, they should comp our meal a little bit. No, no. Like forget about the drama of the event. Let's just run with this. Ran upstairs, got dried off and went out. And what I've learned is anytime there's an experience in life, you have a choice how to view it and the story you tell yourself. And that determines the outcome of the events that happen to you. And I think that so many people choose to embrace drama and trauma as opposed to viewing something differently and saying, wow, there's a positive outcome here. How can I use this? And it's those daily micro decisions you stub your toe. I mean, whatever it is, you're, you have a flat tire. What are you going to do with that? And it's how you use those events positively that changes your life. I just had a guest on the podcast and released her episode a couple of weeks ago. It's Dr. Michelle Seeger. She's a behavioral scientist at the university of Michigan, and she just released a book called the joy choice. And one of the things she found in it is that we are basically conditioned by society in many different ways. But one of them is our behaviors were taught to start and stop, but not sustain. And she said the same thing you did, that throughout all her research, and she concentrates hers on kind of exercise and well-being. But what she has found is if you want sustainable behavioral change, it all has to do with micro choices that you make now and now and now and now and now throughout every single day that influence the long-term impacts that you're going to have. You can easily see that on eating or going to the gym because if you go to the gym once a month, it's not going to have the same effect as going four to five times a week. But the same thing on other elements of our life that we want to improve. If you got a drinking problem and you want to quit, you can't just do it one day a week. Right. Yeah. It's also that with positivity, with you choosing joy, like like you're saying, I mean, it's every moment, what am I going to do with this? I mean, choosing kindness over anger, choosing empathy, it's choosing humor, 
that's one of the most, for me, I always try to choose humor. I can find humor in anything. It's a little, maybe a little twisted, but, <laughs> but it's been a great tool for me when something really sucks. If I can make it funny, it's so much better. It just helps, right? At least when you're going through it. And sometimes we don't know in that moment that this is going to be a positive. It just sucks in that moment. And I'm not, I really want people to know if you're going through something that's horrible, you know what? Feel it, embrace it. Don't suppress it, but also deal with it. Don't wait in it. So I think that's kind of what I preach, so to speak, is I really believe there's two types of people. I mean, we all have crap that happens to us. There are people who love to wait in it and just like stir it up and cause drama. And they're like all about what's been done to them and all these horrible things that have happened to them. And there are those of us who take what's happened to us and find the positive in it. We see how we can claim what we learn from that experience, the traits that make us stronger and use it to move us forward. I really kind of believe there's two different groups of people and it comes down to mindset and those micro choices. I think this is a great way to introduce this next topic I wanted to get in with you. And you mentioned in the book about the different stages in our life and finding meaning throughout each. Why should we begin with the end in mind and what did Deepak Chopra teach you? Well, he taught me about purpose. I think there's a great quote in the book about purpose, what that is. What I learned about beginning with the end in mind is like many people, I mean, I got, you know, I went to law school, I kind of stumbled in my first job and then I kind of like made another pivot. There was never any goal or path. It was just like to get a good job and make money. There was no long-term end in mind. And through all the work that I've done through therapy, through reading, through self-help books, through all of that, I have learned that the best way to conduct yourself in life is to begin with the end in mind and to create and write out the greatest life I could ever imagine is, is that's like a, a prompt and write very specifically what that would look like. And for me, I, I talk about what my mate would look like kind of traits they would have. I talk about how my kids love to see me. They can't wait to spend time with me. The kind of impact I have on this planet, what I leave behind. So when I wrote my story, as I started making changes in life, I started to use that as a roadmap so that when I was given an opportunity, I would ask myself, is this going to get me where I want to go? Is this going to let me spend more time with my kids to develop that relationship. I mean, they're about to go off to college. It's like, this time is so precious. Well, if it's going to suck all my time right now, that's not going to get me that relationship I need to build right now. So I'm going to say no to that project. Maybe later, but right now it's a no because it doesn't fit where I'm trying to go. And having that beautiful detailed idea of where I want to end up has made life decisions so much easier and given me true direction. And I think the thing is, you really have to make it personal to you because I really believe that a lot of depression comes from having too many choices. I think that if you look at the, the countries where people are the happiest, 
it's countries where they're basically born and told you're going to be a driver or you're going to be a banker or whatever that role was in society that they familiarly kind of were designated to have. So they just be the best one they are, they can be. They, we don't, they don't have the plethora of choices. One of the reasons that the Western world is so much more unhappy than the less developed world, I really believe is because we have too many choices. So we are constantly reevaluating, well, maybe I should have done something differently, or maybe I should do what he's doing or she's doing because I could do that. I might do that. And those things are sources of unhappiness. But when you really sit still and meditate and reflect and spend time with who you are and what's important to you and where you want to end up. And you write that out and make that your journey and use that to direct what you're going to do. Suddenly you're so happy because you are not paying attention to all the noise around you. You're not distracted by the bright, shiny objects. You're living with the end in mind with what you want to leave behind on this planet, how you want to touch people's lives, the relationships you want to have, the things that really matter. And you make decisions that will get you there. It's just a better way to live life. Well, I think you just did a great job of describing the whole purpose that we have here on the podcast was teaching people how to live intentionally. And I think one of the best first steps a person can take is you could call it a bucket list. You can call it a contract with yourself. You can call it many different things, but it's orient the way that you want your life to look. Because I'm a huge believer that whether it's saying gratitudes or other things, the way you imagine and the result that you want to have, you can make happen, but you've got to do it intentionally. And I believe you can have all the grit and perseverance in the world, but if that's not intentionally focused, then you could be running down the wrong rabbit hole and just going around in circles instead of reaching the outcome that you want to achieve. Exactly. I totally agree with you. Well, Carrie, if the audience wants to know more about you, and obviously I'm going to put links to the book and your social tabs in the show notes, what are some ways that they can do that? Sure. So uh, my book website is carrington-smith.com. All my social is at carringtonatx. And my LinkedIn, if you're interested in the legal headhunter aspect, is actually under Carrie Smith Trebu. But yeah, I would love to hear from your listeners. And I hope that they will consider um, purchasing the book on Amazon.com. It's also available on, on Audible. They want to listen to it. So, well, that's great. And I didn't get to cover nearly everything in the book. So, there's a lot for you to digest. I would just Tell the listener that a great component of the book talks about the different relationships that Carrie has had along the way in the journey and the ups and downs. I'll just lead you to this one aspect. You kind of profile a couple of different dates that you were going to go on and you use their titles. And I remember one of them, I think the details were it was happening right around Mother's Day and you were waiting at this restaurant and you were really looking forward to the state person doesn't show up, doesn't call, doesn't do anything. Later on, you find that they had a legitimate reason for not doing it, but still you've kind of set your boundaries that you had established. And maybe we'll just end on you talking a little bit about that from the relationship standpoint. I had a guy, I was supposed to meet him on a date on Mother's Day and he stood me up. A couple of things. One, the boundary set is I don't let 
anybody stand me up now. It's like, if you do that, you're done. But the beautiful thing that came out of that was I sat there, I had uh, had a babysitter come over an hour early so I could get ready because my kids were really young. And you spend money on a new outfit, all that you're paying this babysitter and then he stands you up and it was mother's day. And all I could think of was this was my mother's day. I mean, when you're a single mom, there's no one there getting you a spa day or taking you for mother's day brunch. I was paying a babysitter thinking I might have a nice date. And my heart just went out to all the single moms. I thought, I'm so lucky. I am blessed that I can afford a babysitter. There are so many people who have no family and no relief and cannot afford a babysitter. The the hardest working moms are the ones who don't get any celebration or accolades because they never get a break. And so one of the beautiful things that came out of that experience was I started a foundation called the Blooming Foundation. And it's focused on helping single moms and giving them a, a hand up or a day off because my heart just really goes out to people who have had those experiences and really just don't have that safety net. And so that's the beautiful thing that came out of that experience. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for being so vulnerable with your story. And I'm sure for you, the way you talk about it, it's end up being a great therapeutic thing for you as well to get over all these hardships that you go through in the book. And we just touched on a few of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Carrie, thank you so much for joining the podcast today and sharing your words of wisdom with our audience. Thank you so much for having on. This has been great. I really appreciate it. And I love we had all these things in common. I had no idea. So this has been fun to learn more about you as well. I thoroughly enjoyed that interview with Carrie and wanted to thank her so much for being a guest on the show. And all things Carrie will be in the show notes on the passionstruck.com website. Please use our website links if you buy any of the books from the guests on the show. Any of those proceeds go to support the show and make it free for our listeners. Videos from the show are posted on YouTube and you can find them at our station at John R. Miles. Please go there and subscribe. Advertisers, deals, and discount codes are conveniently located in one place at passionstruck.com slash deal. Please support those who support the show. I'm at John R. Miles, both at Twitter and Instagram, and you can also find me on LinkedIn. If you want to know how I book all these amazing guests, it's because of my network. Go out there and build those relationships before you need them. And most of the guests on the show actually subscribe and provide their input on guests and topics that we have here on the program. Come join us. You'll be in great company. You're about to hear a preview of the Passion Struck podcast with Gene Olwen, who is the president and founding CEO. CEO of Virgin Unite and author of the newly released book, Partnering, Forge Deep Connections That Make Great Things Happen. Love was at the center of all of these companies. And I think, John, we're taught to think that we can't have love in a company. We have to just focus on the goal. It has to be transactional. And I think that's such a mistake because when you build love and deep connection at the center of a company, of a partnership, of movement to change the world, That's what's going to keep that bond strong. And that's what's going to bring really light and joy into our lives are these deep connections that we build with one another. The fee for the show is that you share it with friends and family members. If you find something useful or interesting, if you know someone who's dealing with mental issues or overcoming family instability like Carrington, please share this episode with them. The greatest compliment that you can give us here on the show is to share these episodes with those you love and care about. In the meantime, do your best to apply what you hear on the show so that you can live what you listen. And we'll see you next time. Live 
life passion struck. 